friends, we look back into Acts chapter 2. Still continuing on there in verse 42 with those four pillars of the church. We looked into how they continually and steadfastly continued in the doctrine of the apostles, which is the teaching of the New Testament church. In fact, it's the teaching of the Bible. The Old Testament, of course, as we know, being a shadow of what was to come. And so we sometimes may actually think that the apostles themselves taught the New Testament. They actually taught from the old. Jesus, sorry, Paul taught Jesus and proved Jesus and argued Jesus from the Old Testament scriptures. It's an interesting thing to think of if we were given that task. Of proving to our neighbours who Jesus was from the Old Testament scriptures how much of a good job we will be able to do with that. So they steadfastly continued in their doctrine and we know of course then that the apostles were writing and speaking the New Testament at the time. They were given direct revelation from God to write and to speak the inerrant word. And then we know that they continued on in that fellowship of the New Testament church. It was not just a one-time deal. It wasn't just that they were saved and baptized, went back to their home and life went on. Their whole lives were radically transformed. That they had found a new family. That they were, if you like, grafted in to the body of Christ, as Gentiles also were later on. We see Pentecost here in Acts chapter 2. Rarely we see the Pentecost of the Jews. We go over to Acts chapter 10 and also explain in Acts chapter 11. We see there at the house of Cornelius what would or could be termed the Pentecost of the Gentiles. And their fellowship together was truly remarkable. And as we read in that short 10 verse context, that this is a real picture of the New Testament church, that they poured everything in. So that everybody that had need would be cared for and looked after. And we too, friends, have a responsibility to make sure that those amongst us who are struggling are cared for. And that's actually first and foremost. I say that carefully. But yes, we have homeless people and we have those in need in our towns and villages. And we ought to do all that we can. And we do. You know, God be praised, we do an awful lot in this church. But first and foremost, actually, it's the household of God that we must look to and to take care of. And then we see the breaking of bread. And they were introduced into this great, this wonderful sacrament that Jesus himself instituted. You look in John chapter 6. And although it's not in the sense the institution of the Lord's Supper, what he was speaking of when he was speaking to the Jews that they must eat his flesh and drink his blood, which was, of course, anathema to the Jews, which is why they were so offended, because life is in the blood, and the blood, as it was said in the Old Testament, should never be touched. And Jesus was speaking about something altogether. It was a fulfillment of actually all that the blood and the sacrifices pointed to in the Old Testament. He was the ultimate one, the ultimate sacrifice, who laid down his life, the ultimate lamb, there would be no more. So his blood and his body represented in the bread and the wine, which is what we have just partaken of as believers. 
So today we, we look at this continuing steadfastly in prayer. Luke chapter 5 verse 16 speaks of Jesus, who is our prime, most wonderful example. The Lord Jesus Christ said, it says of him, he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. There are so many deep and wonderful things to look at when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ who needed to pray. Yes, needed to pray. In Luke 11 verse 1, Now it came to pass, as he was praying in a certain place, speaking of course again of the Lord Jesus, when he ceased, that one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. Lord, teach us to pray. Martin Luther said this, To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. You know, we can, and I'm sure as Christians we heartily agree with that, but I think that's a very challenging statement. Because I think one thing for believers that they can sometimes, maybe more so than others, some people are given a gift of prayer, I believe. I also believe that women particularly have a real sensitivity in prayer. I do think it's a real gift, generally, that women have. And I do believe that some people are more gifted in, in a sense in prayer than others. But I do also think that, that prayer is something that Christians can struggle with. Why? Because it goes against everything. It streams against everything that the flesh wants. And I think to myself sometimes in the office, I get into study, I get into thinking, I get into reading, and then I, halfway through the day I think I'm not even praying. And you know what that says? That says that I can prepare and I can write my notes without the help of God. It's a bad place to be. Yeah. So we need to be careful, challenged about the issue of prayer. Because prayerlessness really shows that we don't really need God. That's a really hard thing to ponder on. But isn't it so needful that we sometimes ponder on the hard things so that actually we're changed? When we look at people who are of strong and good character, godly character, their character has not been changed and people of God are not made humble because God has just zapped them with humility. It's because they've gone through things. Yeah. Because they found their face mm -hmm. on the floor, knees scraped by prayer. We are often broken down by God himself through the situations of life. Which is why he allows suffering. Maybe not the only reason, but he brings us to himself, causes us to rely upon him. To call upon him. And this, 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 this prayer, this communion that he's given us with him is such a tremendous thing, such a wonderful thing. Think about the priests of old. Think about, the, think about when we look at the Old Testament. Think about those people who, who, uh, who surrounded the tabernacle that was so uh, dramatically and, and to the T built in the way that God has said it should be. We think about that time and we think about how the priests went into that 
Holy of Holies. What did he do? He had bells around the hem of his garment. Why? Because if they stopped ringing, if they stopped moving and stopped jingling, people actually thought that he was dead. And I read somewhere that sometimes they, they tied a rope around the waist of the priest so that if he died in the presence of God, they at least could pull him out without entering into the most holy place. And you look again and you see how they had to consecrate themselves and clean themselves. Seven days. Seven days of cleansing before they could even go into the holy place. But once a year for the forgiveness of sin of the nation of Israel. And not only that, the priest himself had to be cleaned before. Which is so, so thankful for us, so grateful for us, so wonderful for us to think that we have a high priest that didn't have to be, that didn't have to cleanse his own sin before he went before God into that true most holy place, heaven. But the, the people couldn't just approach God. Think of the fear of the Israelites when they were near the mountain that trembled. You see Moses, you go, you go, you go. You've been called, you go and see him. Because we're terrified. And I don't think we somehow grasp the reality. Just how terrifying the presence of God is for human beings. And the only way that we can actually approach God, which I am absolutely certain that every one of us have taken for granted, we can only approach God through Christ. It's only because of Him. It's only because of Him the veil was torn from top to bottom. We enter in through Him, which is, I'm not going to speak about this today. But you know when we pray in the name of Jesus, that oftentimes we find ourselves repeating that after the end of every prayer, we pray this in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. Although we do that, and I'm not saying it's wrong to do that, so don't get me wrong, but we often do that because Jesus said, you now pray in my name. But the reality is, what does it mean to pray in the name of Jesus? It's not just about repeating that at the end of every prayer. The reality is, there is no other way. Because we can't go to God without Him. We have to go through Christ. Otherwise, friends, we would be melted in the presence of God like wax in front of a huge fire. Yeah. In His presence. We can only go to God who is our loving Heavenly Father? He is. And He's turned His face toward us in, in favour and grace and mercy and love and loving kindness and peace. But why? Not because we deserve it, as you very well know. Not because we have attained it somehow, but because of one who has done it for us. We can still only enter the presence of God through Christ. We see that when those ancient doors and those gates of heaven opened, they opened up to Him. That's why they'll open up to us on that great day. So these new converts, they steadfastly continued in prayer. Jesus, God the Son incarnate, regularly withdrew himself to pray alone. Regularly. Martin Luther maintains that prayer is as vital in the life of a Christian as it is for human beings to breathe. Charles Spurgeon insists, that no man can progress in grace if he forsakes prayer. And upon seeing Jesus pray, one of the disciples asked him, Lord, teach us to pray. How vital then is prayer to the Christian? I would say that we would all join together with the resounding amen to that statement, that it is indeed vital. But if it was necessary for the disciples to ask their Lord to teach them to pray, 
It infers that there is much to be learned. Prayer is not just a simple thing. How often, if ever, have we taken the time to ask the question, what is prayer? We need to know the answer to that question. What is prayer? What need is there to be taught? Doesn't everyone know how to pray? Sometimes rather than starting with questioning what something is, it's helpful to start by asking what it is not. So that's where we will begin. And again, just like last week with regarding to breaking bread, these things are only general. I'm only dealing with general things here today. We can go much deeper and much wider in this great issue of prayer, which, God willing, we will attempt to do at some point. So what prayer is not? Prayer, friends, is not a formula. It's not a formula for strong-arming God, for twisting His arm. For example, there is a tendency, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to maintain the idea that the more people we get to pray, the more likely God will answer the prayer that we're praying. This is, in theory, trying to twist God's arm. Instead of, let's say, ten people praying, we get a hundred people. Surely God will take more notice if a hundred people pray. Surely He's likely to answer my prayer if I get the whole congregation to pray with me rather than my one lonesome cry. Now it is, it is true, brothers and sisters, understand what I'm saying when I'm saying these things. It is true to say that it is biblical that people gather to pray. Yeah. It absolutely is. Yeah. But sometimes the way we are as human beings and the way we may view things, the reason for that may be a little bit off in our own mind. So it is true that people gathered to pray in the Bible. We think about when Peter was in prison. Do you remember that instance when Peter was in prison? And it says in the scripture in Acts 12, constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Also in Acts 1 again, as those in the upper room waited for the promise of the Holy Spirit. It says that they continued, again we keep seeing this word in Acts, don't we? They continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Notice that coming together to pray was not about convincing God to act using strength by numbers. But was about being united together in one accord. One purpose. They came together with one accord to pray and to intercede God. But it wasn't about them coming together to try somehow to twist God's arm, to get God to do what they were praying for. Lord, surely, you know, we've got more than, more than 12 people. We've got 24. We've doubled the lot. Surely God's going to listen to us. This wasn't about Strength in numbers. 
This was about the unity of the body of Christ, all coming together under the purpose of what God had called them to do. I remember many years ago, I say many years, I mean I'm not ancient, but nevertheless, it's got to be, I think it's possibly 20 years ago. In the church I attended back then, one of the congregation had a notebook. And on that notebook was a, one of those, um, I think it's like an envelope sticker. I think that's what they are, address sticker, is that right, label sticker? And on that sticker, in black marker, was written these words. Prayer changes things. Yeah. Prayer changes things. <clears throat> I must admit, when I saw it then, it got me thinking. I mean, that's why I remember it to this day. It's, why would you remember something like that? A notebook that's got three words on it says prayer changes things. Why would you remember that? Because it struck something within me even then. Even in my immaturity. Not sure what it struck or why it struck. But it did. <coughs> and this was written on the front of that notebook. For the purpose of kind of jump starting that person. To see it and think oh you know this has encouraged me today. It's like an inspiration to prayer. A.W. Pink makes the following statement. When I read this, I was quite surprised because of what I'd seen. So he says this. He makes the following statement regarding this actual popular phrase. Almost everywhere we go today, he says, we come across a motto card bearing the inscription, Prayer Changes Things. What these words are designed to signify is evident from the current literature on prayer. I don't know what literature he was talking about, but obviously the literature that was out on prayer at that time was causing some stir. So he says that what these words are designed to signify is evident from the current literature on prayer, that we are to persuade God to change his purpose. That's what these words infer. Prayer changes things. And he's saying that the literature of the day, in his day, was promoting the idea that we, the people of God, are to persuade God to change his purpose. Now, what saith the scripture? But that is the most important thing. We can have our opinions, we can have our thoughts, we can have everything that we've learned in the past from the churches we've been to. But our plumb line is the scriptures. Ephesians 1.11 says, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will. You notice there it says his own will. He works all things together according to the counsel of his will own will. We've been going through this really in the Bible studies that we've been doing and seeing a few little nods of the head there saying yeah this is, this is ringing a bell that God's decrees that he decrees everything that is ever to come to pass before the foundation of the world. Yeah. If that's the case how then are we to persuade God to change his determined purpose? Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. 
No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Friends, God has an eternal purpose. And it is very much so that it is eternal. Ephesians 3.11, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. He has an eternal purpose. God's purpose, God's decree, or his decrees, even though rarely in reality, if we look at it in the depth of what it really means, it is God's decree. They're fixed. Immovable. And absolutely certain. He is the immutable or the unchangeable God. If God's purpose or policy is changeable, or able to be shaped by man's prayers, then it cannot be eternal. And if, as Scripture tells us, his purpose is indeed eternal, they are fixed and nothing will change it. If our prayers change God's purpose, it naturally sets the will of man above that of God. Our will becomes supreme, rather than his. And what does Paul ask in Romans 11 verse 34? For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? I'm sure the echo of your own mind right there in your seat is not I. Yeah. I haven't been his counsellor. If I can counsel God, then he ceases to be God. Yeah. Pink again says these words. Such thoughts on prayer as we have been citing are due to low and inadequate conceptions of God himself. It ought to be apparent that there could be little or no comfort in praying to a God that was like the chameleon which changes its colour every day. What encouragement is there to lift up our hearts to the one who is in one mind yesterday and another today? What would be the use of petitioning an earthly monarch if we knew he was so mutable as to grant a petition one day and then deny it another? Is it not the very unchangeableness of God which is our greatest encouragement to pray. Friends, we've got to think upon these things. We're going to make our hearts and our minds wider and broader upon such issues that are so important. Is it not, think about this, is it not in the very unchangeableness of God which is our greatest encouragement to pray? God doesn't change. He is faithful. He's not going to make you a promise and then not deliver on it the next day. What God says, He does. What God promises, He fulfills. And the fact that He doesn't change gives me and you, or should do, more comfort. What Pink is saying here is if, if God promised you something, but He could change His mind tomorrow, what grace is there in prayer? What point is there in your, in your trusting in Him? If you never know whether he's going to keep what he said. Whether he's going to change his mind tomorrow. 
It is because he is without variableness or shadow of turning, as it says in James. We are assured that if we ask anything according to his will, we are most certain of being heard. Yeah. Truly wonderful. Yeah. Well did Luther remark, prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance. Listen to this, friends. Prayer is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. So this issue of prayer, I have, I have thought this, I, I admit it to you, that somehow the more that people pray, the more we get together, let's, let's get that church involved, let's get this church involved, let's get as many, let's have a national day of prayer. Again, I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. Is prayer ever wrong? But where is our mind at? For what reason are we saying, let's get everybody to do this? What's my thoughts in why I'm doing that? Is it because I want to be united with my brothers and sisters and trusting in the unchangeable uh, faithfulness of God? Mm. Or is it because I think that somehow God's going to listen to me because I've got more people to pray about the issue at hand? That I'm trying to put force his arm up his back to say, Surely now you're going to answer. So what, my friends, does prayer include? The question may very well be asked then. If God, by the counsel of his own sovereign will, has decreed all that should come to pass, why pray? Why pray? It is a... An interesting and understandable question, I guess. <coughs> We're told by Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, to be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. How many of us are ever anxious? One hand. Two, three. Ah, oh, that's better. And yet he says here, don't be. Don't be anxious for anything. Again, what Phil said to me while he was putting the numbers up here, we were talking briefly about something, and he was saying, yeah, but we moan, don't we? How true is it? He says, be anxious for nothing. But, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And whilst this is certainly part of the function of prayer, the gift has been given us as a way to bring honour to God. The gift of prayer has been given us that we may honour God. In praying we recognise and confess many things the scriptures tell us are wonderful truths. Scripture tells us that there is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved than that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that salvation is of the Lord. We can find that in Jonah chapter 2 verse 9. Salvation is of the Lord. So when we pray, as we do, we have a list at the back there with many names on. Sometimes it's shorter, other times it's longer. 
on an evening on a Tuesday or when the ladies meet or when the men meet. We've got names that keep popping out. We've got family members. We've got husbands or wives or, or whoever it is who we're praying for. Daughters, sons, nephews, nieces, grandchildren who we're often laying at the feet of Christ that he might save them. But what are we doing in that? What is, what is that really about? Well, that brings honour to God. Why? How? Because we honour Him by declaring Him as the only hope. He's the only hope for the salvation of our families. He's the only hope for our grandchildren. He's the only hope for the salvation of my brother and sister. So when I go before the throne of God and say, Lord, you saved them, that honours God. Because all, what we're saying then is, Lord, there is no hope but you. There is no other name under heaven by which my sister and my brother can be saved but yours. Yeah. That brings honour to God. What about the issue or the example, should I say, of Hannah? Hannah was crying out to God for a son. <clears throat> Knowing her barrenness. Interestingly enough, we see in the context there that it was God himself that had withheld her womb from producing fruit. And God had caused her to be barren. Something that we may not like sometimes to admit. People often say, oh, God doesn't cause these things to happen. Well, go and read Hannah's story. It says very emphatically that it was God that withheld her from having any children. Why? Because this was the means to this end. So she was crying out to God, seeing this other wife of a husband who was just basically having babies like there were no tomorrow. <laughs> and she's there longing for a son and she can't get pregnant because God has withheld the fruit of her womb. So when she cried out to God, what was she doing? She was owning the fact that he was the only one who could bring forth that fruit from her womb. Yeah. But children were a gift from God. It was only him. She was obviously knowing her husband. Which is why the outcome of being barren was known. They were coming together as husband and wife do and there was no fruit. What could he do? Am I not more to you than ten sons? That's what he said to her. I can do nothing more. She was crying out to God and she was saying, Lord, there is no other, no other hope but you. In our prayers of supplication and intercession, we honour God by showing and saying that we believe that he is God and there is no other. If we believe as we ought, that God's purpose is eternal, that he is sovereign over all, that he knows the beginning from the end, not because he sees forward and therefore knows, but because he has decreed it, we must also admit that not only has he decreed all things that come to pass, but he has also decreed the means to that end. One Corinthians one twenty one. For since in the wisdom of God, 
The world through wisdom did not know God. It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So we see there an example of what we've just said, the means to the end. God chose preaching and it turns it there, the foolishness of the preached message. Not that God views it as foolishness, but it's seen as foolishness by man. You go and stand in the, uh, down at the, the lake there on a hot summer's day where that field is crowded and start preaching the gospel, which may happen by the way. You go and do that and you'll soon see what people think is foolishness. Yeah. Get a job. Get a real job. Get a life. Yeah. I've heard it all when I've been preaching on the streets. Yeah. People think it's foolish. People think you're an idiot. They really do think you're very sad for what you believe. But God says here that he has called it to be the foolishness of preaching the message by which he saves those who believe. And God's chosen the preaching of the gospel as the means which to bring salvation. And again, as Pink rightly states, in supplicating his blessing on the gospel unto the uttermost parts of the earth, we declare his rulership over the whole earth. Now when we pray, Lord save, Lord would you bring revival, would you revive this town, would you do what you did all those years ago in the Isle of Lewis in Scotland and in those places in New England and America and with George Whitfield wherever he went and with the Wesley brothers, would you do it again? What are we saying? Yeah. We're saying that he is the ruler of this world and that brings honour to God. Things worship to Prayer then is also one of the means by which he brings his will to pass. 1 John 5.14 Now this is the confidence we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Very important then. Because we go on to read what it says in James. James chapter 4 verses 2 and 3. You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war. Yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss. That you may spend it on your pleasures. There is an asking. There is, in many circles of the supposed Christian faith, a commanding even. Sow this and you'll get this. Give me a thousand dollars and God will give you two. You have not, because you ask amiss. But if you pray according to the will of God, he will hear you. We must in our prayers then ask according to the will of God. The promise is that when we pray according to the will of God, that he hears us. God's determined purpose after the death of Joshua was to give Israel judges and prophets. Samuel really was that first of that mainstream line of prophets through Hannibal. And the word of the Lord 
was read at that time as we read in 1 Samuel 3, I believe. The womb of Hannah was closed, causing her to cry out to God for a male child. And then she promised to give him to the Lord all the days of his life. This child was Samuel, the prophet of God, who brought the word of the Lord to Israel. And when presenting Samuel before Eli to become his servant in the temple, Hannah said, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. You see, God had so ordered this situation. Samuel was God's prophet to the people. But he so declared and ordered and decreed the means to the end. Which was that Hannah would be barren. And she'd cry out to God. He'd so put it in her heart, the longing for a male child, that she promised, Lord, if you give me this, I'll give him to you. And she did. And he did. Or should I say, and he did and she did. Samuel was given to Israel by God. The means to that end was that Hannah would be broken. And she'd be longing for a child and she'd seek the face of God. She prayed in the will of God and she was answered. Let's just have a brief look at the, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9-13. The words are this, In this manner therefore pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and glory forever. Amen. This is what he said to them when he said, show us how to pray. Pray like this. We ought to be asking for our daily bread. Is that in the will of God? Absolutely. He promises. But notice, he says this. Your kingdom come. Pray this. Your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want you to think about two particular instances in which God was prayed to. And he didn't change the situation. Think of Paul when he prayed. Three times I petitioned you that you might take away this thorn in the flesh. Three times. What was God's answer? My grace is sufficient for thee. He didn't take it away. Not everything that we pray is always in the will of God. Paul I don't know what that thorn in the flesh was. I don't think anybody particularly really understands everything about the realities of what that thorn in the flesh was. People have ideas. People say it's a problem with his eyes. The scripture there says to me it was a messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. And for my own opinion, I believe it was this sore pain of the realities of how he treated and molested the church of Jesus Christ. 
how he stood there and held the coats of those of self-esteem and, and such others who he chased after, split families and broken the church in the way. I believe that he was broken by it. And I believe that he wanted peace from it. Maybe. Just an opinion. And he sought God three times and said, Lord, will you remove this from me? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. He didn't take it away. Because that was the will of God. What about David? When he besought the Lord, save the child. Will you let him live? And he was on his face in dust and ashes and sackcloth. And he stayed there until news came that his child had died. And the people around him were surprised that after he had died, he got up and he washed himself and anointed himself with oil and he went to eat. But there you see again what David prayed for, what David pleaded the Lord for, was not given to him. He could also then state about Jesus when he prayed in the garden, Lord, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. Friends, this idea of prayer is not about changing God's mind. It's about submitting to his will yeah. in all things. Which is what these people did. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. For even in the hardship, even in the buffeting of the, of the messenger sent to Paul, even in the death of the child with David, Was there not great things that came out of it? Solomon, although he had a bit of trouble during, at the end of his life, went wayward. Was he not one that God loved? Out of adultery, he loved the child, set his love upon him. And Paul, who became one of the greatest men probably the world has ever known under the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a humble man. A broken man who knew who he was, the chief of sinners, the one that in the scripture, in the words, when you look at the depth of the words, he molested the church. Now that's a horrible word, isn't it? Molested. He molested the church. God had great mercy upon him. Friends, prayer is an act of worship. In prayer, we humble ourselves. In prayer, we humble our hearts and our souls before God. We recognise his great name as we call upon his goodness. As we call upon his might and his power and grace and mercy and kindness and love. We worship him in prayer. Owning and confessing that his immutability, that is God is perpetually the same. That he doesn't change. He's not subject to change like we are. Which is why he's so faithful. We confess these things. We own his sovereignty. Think of that great prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like we just mentioned. In the garden of Gethsemane. Where it says he went a little further. Fell on his face and prayed. Saying oh my father. If it is possible. Let this cup pass from me nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Prayer also gives glory to God. In prayer, our total dependency upon God is laid bare. 
He is honoured as we lean solely upon Him in our supplications. And as we seek blessings from His hand, we declare that He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. That all good gifts are given by Him. Yeah. But without faith, says in Hebrews 11 verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God is glorified as prayer calls for the exercise of faith. Which in making him our confidence honours and pleases him. We exercise faith in prayer friends. And we say you are our confidence. We lean fully in everything upon you, our Father, our God, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, Trinitarian God, three persons, one God. We completely and utterly throw our dependency upon you. Prayer is appointed by God for us to seek him for all of our needs. Philippians 4.19 again says, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. He will supply your need. Prayer is not for the purpose of informing God as if he were unaware. Therefore do not be like the Gentiles, the scripture says. For your Father knows the things that you are in need of before you ask. Gentiles are obviously known for their much praying in great words of exercise and longevity. Just went on and on about the same thing, basically. And he says, don't do that. Be straightforward in your petitions. Be direct in what you need. And don't go on and on and on. Because your father knows what you need when you ask him. Psalm 139 makes it clear that he knows my sitting down and my rising up. Understands my thoughts from afar off. Is acquainted with all of my ways. There is not a word on my tongue that he doesn't know. So, If God knows our needs, why then do we pray and seek him for them? When we pray to God for our needs, we confess to him that we have a sense of our own need and we come to him for provision. God's ways are not ours and the truth is he requires his gifts to be sought for. He is honoured as we ask and we seek. And he is to be thanked by us by the blessings that he does give. This is about obedience. He's asked us to do it. This is the way he has set it out. God calls us to pray. The scripture says in Luke 18 verse 1 that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, 
that we ought to pray without ceasing. James tells us that the prayer of faith will save the sick. And again, that the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. These points mentioned this morning are but a cup of water taken from a vast ocean. Regarding prayer, there is much to learn, much to study, and much to put into practice. And this is, this is, this is for all of us, not just a few, not just for you, but for me. But it is without doubt true that we've barely touched the surface of this vast subject here today. <clears throat> and also in our own lives of prayer. If Jesus needed to pray often, and the disciples needed to be taught how to pray, how much more we? Yeah. I want to leave you with two more comments as I finish. Again, our friend A.W. Pink. Prayer is not intended to change God's purpose, nor is it to move him to form fresh purposes. God has decreed that certain events shall come to pass through the means he has appointed for their accomplishment. God has elected certain ones to be saved, but he has also decreed that these shall be saved through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel, then, is one of the appointed means for the working out of the eternal counsel of the Lord, and prayer is another. God has decreed the means as well as the end, and among the means is prayer. Even the prayers of his people are included in his eternal decrees. Therefore, instead of prayers being in vain, they are among the means through which God exercises his decrees. And then a man by the name of Robert Haldane, who wrote a very well-known uh, and good commentary on Romans. If indeed all things happen by blind chance, or fatal necessity, prayers in that case would be of no moral efficacy, no effect, and of no use. But since they are regulated by the direction of divine wisdom, prayers have a place in the order of events. Very true statements. Very encouraging statements. And I, I do hope today, brothers and sisters, that this is an encouragement to you. That we're praying and worshipping in our prayers and owning the facts and the truths of who he is in our prayers and fully relying on him in our prayers and saying how much we need him and how much we are submitted to his will in our prayers. Not trying to strong arm God. Not trying to make him change his mind on something that he's already decided. This is relational. But he will supply the needs of his people. And he hears the prayers of the righteous. And he causes us to pray in accordance with his decree. So that actually all that we pray and we give to God, he makes them come in line with his purpose. Acts 2.42, they continue. Steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine, 
fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. May it be amongst us here, the Rock of Ages, the Evangelical Church, that we continue to hunger and thirst after the truth of God's Word found in the Scriptures. That we don't neglect or lower nor cheapen the importance of biblical fellowship. That we seek to experience the wonders and rejoice in the Lord's Supper as a body of believers. And that we grow in our understanding of and unceasing participation in prayer. May God be praised. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father God, we thank you that we can indeed come to you in this great gift of prayer. Lord, we submit to your will. We pray, Lord God, because we trust you. We pray, Lord God, because we love you. We pray because you're the only one that can save the souls of our families and friends and those of us who may be unsaved here. Those that we're praying for, our towns and villages, Lord, who else but you can so grab a hold of the minds and the hearts of wicked men and women. Lord, we pray because we depend upon you. We pray because you are unchangeable and you are faithful. And so, Lord, we, we don't pray that every one of our petitions is answered with a yes. But we pray, Lord God, and we pray that times sinfully, carnally, the Lord, you will do all according to your will in those prayers that we offer. Yeah. And we know, Lord, that the judge of the earth does right. We know that you love us and anything that you do or don't do is for our ultimate good. So, Lord, we pray that you help us to pray. Lord, that you would teach us to pray. And that we would be lovers of prayer, that we would be often in prayer, that we would be those who are unceasing in prayer. That we know that the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That we know, Lord God, that you have indeed decreed before the foundation of the earth all that comes to pass. And that our prayers are part of that decree and are included and inclusive. And so are a means to the end that you have decreed. So we thank you for that. Thank you that you have so humbly and so wonderfully given us a place. Lord, help us to be prayers at home, church, wherever we are. Lord, for it is one of those things that I believe that we greatly neglect. Help us then, we pray. For your glory, for your honour, in the name of Jesus. We pray these things. Amen. Amen. Amen.